Fuck I talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome to Buckeye Talk. I am Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com. I'm here with Stephen Means from Cleveland.com. We are without Doug Maurice from Cleveland.com. He is on a jet ski or eating at a TJ Fridays or something on vacation this week, which is too bad because we have some breaking news today to discuss. Uh, later in the podcast, Emily Jimbavo, who covers Maryland for the Washington Post, is going to be on. Uh, we had a long discussion about the Terrapins uh, in the latest in our Ohio State upcoming opponent, we hope upcoming opponent uh, preview yeah. series we've been running this summer. Um, and I was going to get on here and I just, I was going to goof off and say, oh, I'm on here by myself and uh, make a bunch of jokes about how I was going to do a list of uh, uh, Purdue basketball and St. Louis Cardinals <laughs> stuff. I don't even know. Um just just to just to make fun of uh, myself a little bit uh and then um i'm driving around franklin county tonight um just got off a of 270 to go see a a condo that uh, i'm definitely not going to buy and the email comes the the word comes out that ohio state is suspending pausing as they put it their their preseason voluntary workouts because of positive tests that have come up among players in the football program and other programs it's not just football um, it, it's it's throughout all, all of the the seven sports that have come back and started resuming their workouts uh, in June. And this was um, a little bit surprising. Uh, well, I should say, let me say it this way. It's not surprising that they've had positive tests. Um, there have been positive tests throughout the country. Uh, other programs have completely shut down their workouts because of a spike in tests. So that wasn't necessarily a shock. I think what is a little bit surprising was I, I I thought that teams were more vulnerable when those when they were first returning and for all indications what we've heard was that Ohio State had not had I don't know if they've had I don't want to say they've had none but there was not some big spike in tests from those initial results when players were all first coming back for workouts that caused any kind of alarm and you would have thought that now that they're in Columbus and that they're a little bit more sequestered and they could control this better. It was the whole point of the Buckeye pledge that they signed. It's the whole point of, of all of the strictures and guidelines that they've put up to try to keep players healthy. And then, then this test result comes up. So I'm not sure yet. We're going to get into this in a second. I'm not sure that it's like a devastating thing for Ohio State. It's not good news, but I also don't know that I'm significantly more pessimistic than I was earlier in the day. I can go into that more in detail, but I've been talking for a while. And Stephen, I guess just your initial reaction to hearing that these results came in and that this has happened and it affects men's basketball too, which you covered affects yeah. several other sports, every sport that had returned for the fall, it's shut down. It's indefinite. An OSU spokesman told me that they have a date in mind to return, but for now they're just calling it kind of leaving it open-ended. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know how shocked I am that it was shut down. I'm, first of all, because to the point of the more people you test, the more people are going to have it. Sure, you can say that. But I do think they opened things up, see how things were going to go. And once they got some test results back, I'm not surprised that they shut things down so they can maybe tweak a couple of things. But from how you've kind of reported things here, they're doing a lot better than some of the other top programs around the country are doing, which is a good sign there. But I think any number over 
zero, I think they probably would have shut it down just because now you have some numbers of, you know, who has what, what programs are maybe struggling more than others. And you can kind of work with that and maybe tweak some things and how you're going about it. So as you're going to hear later, I talked to Emily Jimbavo a little bit about this. I, I kind of, I started our conversation just asking her about some COVID-19 stuff. Um, she obviously works in Washington, D.C., where, you know, you're in the, the political capital of our country, one of the political hotbeds of the world. So there's that perspective on COVID and how it's been handled and all that stuff. And she also is spending her summer in South Carolina, where she's from, where Clemson just had its big, you know, they've had 37 players at, that we know of that had tested positive. It's a state that's kind of seen a big swell in its numbers. So there's a different perspective from there. And on top of that, her mom was, uh, is a, a doctor. So she had um, a direct you know, kind of medical perspective to, to draw on. So um, I thought I was just kind of bringing that up as, I, as we'll bring up with almost anybody we talk to, because the, the question that dominates the sport right now is whether or not football is going to happen this fall. So I, I brought that up just as kind of a, a, an easy thing to get out of the way at the start of the conversation. And then here we are, and it becomes so significant for Ohio State by the end of the day um, as to whether or not, you know, today's news signals a, a big setback for them. And I'm, I'm skeptical that it does for a couple of reasons. Or I guess I'm, I'm optimistic that it doesn't <laughs> is another way to say it. Um, my indications from the people I've talked to so far, and I think there's some other reporting out there on this, that you may be talking about so far a, a number of positive tests in the single digits among all the athletes who've been tested so far. I've heard a number of, of football players that you could count on one hand. I'm not, I'm trying, I don't, I'm not trying to be, I guess I am being intentionally vague because I, I try to reach certain levels of surety and what I report and what I don't report. I'm not, I'm trying to tiptoe around that a little bit, which I don't think you guys will hear me do very often, but I want to try to bring you the correct perspective on this. And so I'm hearing that it's not a big number. It's not an LSU Clemson, North Carolina kind of number. The number, you know, Kansas state had big numbers. You know, other, other programs are shut down because of big numbers. I'm not hearing that at Ohio state. The other thing you have to remember here is we're on, this is Wednesday the 8th that this is happening. Monday the 13th was supposed to be the first day of voluntary, or I'm sorry, of mandatory practices. Teams could start having mandatory hours of activities per week with their athletes. And at the, at the start, that wasn't going to be full contact. It wasn't going to be real football. It was going to be, you could make them have meetings, whereas right now it's voluntary. You could make them go to strength and conditioning, whereas right now it's voluntary. It's just, it's almost a semantic change in what's happening. That was going to go on for two weeks and there was going to be, um, another or maybe it's just one week and then another period where it ramps up a little bit more and then that leads into the beginning of August where then you have the five-day acclimatization and then 25 on-field practices so if Ohio State has a does not have to have a significant number of cases a number of positives for it to pump the brakes and say if you stop today if you shut down for a week or you shut down even through the end of next week you don't lose a lot of practices and you potentially stop something before it becomes an even bigger problem. You get like, as you, as you kind of said it, you get to put a, get a handle on things. Um, 
I don't know that that's what's happened, uh, but again, that's the indications we're getting is that it isn't a huge number that it that they just had to shut down because you have to now quarantine, um, you know, a third of the team or whatever, as, as some of these other programs have had to do. It sounds more like enough tests have come in positive, and especially maybe relative to the numbers that had come in so far, that it was prudent to stop pause, halt, whatever the word they're using, and then move forward. Now, the other thing to remember here is, though, another thing I've heard is that there are still more tests to come in. So we could be talking about a different number by the end of the week. And I think that's the other thing that would, if I were Ohio State, and you get a certain number with more tests that are planning, supposed to be coming in, I would definitely shut things down because you don't want to wait and find out that an even bigger percentage of those people test positive and now your number is much bigger and it's and and in the meantime you don't know who you've exposed and who you haven't. It's it's a confusing time to report on some of these things yeah. and Ohio State has not been very forthcoming in terms of numbers. I think they should be a little bit more forthcoming in terms of numbers. I think it would give the public a better understanding of the situation. Um I guess you could argue that it's one of those things just like injuries where we, we gain more than Ohio state does by putting that information out. And, the, the, but I, I think, I think there is a benefit to the public if we know more than, than allowing people to wonder if there's been a big, uh, a cluster. It was what the word they used at North Carolina an outbreak. There's a difference between a few people testing positive and a, a something running rampant through a program. Yeah, they, they have kind of handled this with the same way that they've done injuries, where it's very vague at, at most it's pretty It's pretty much a vague thing. And especially given they've had, especially once again, they've, they seem to have handled this better than a lot of other college programs around the country. So it is a little confusing to see how vague they have been with some of these numbers. As of late. So obviously, football is the one that's the most urgent to all of our listeners or to most of our listeners, I would imagine, and really to, to sports in general, I've, I have been working on a piece um, about the kind of the concept of should Ohio state look at cutting sports based on the, um, the budget cuts that could be coming when they find out, you know, when we find out for sure exactly what kind of impact COVID-19 is going to have on the football schedule in 2020. I've been planning to run that story very soon. And then Stanford came out today and said it was cutting 11 of its sports. And that was one of the only other athletic programs. that's nearly the size of Ohio state. And it's, it's apples and oranges. I'm not going to get too far down this level, this road, because comparing Stanford to Ohio state gets a little bit tricky. Once you get past the fact that they both offered a lot of sports because Stanford doesn't have a hundred thousand seat football stadium that it packs every Saturday. It doesn't have big 10 network revenue. It was already facing big athletic deficits that only became worse because of COVID-19. And that's not necessarily the case for Ohio state, but this is where we're at because the timeline for football is getting really urgent. As much as I just spoke with optimism about the fact that Ohio state may not lose a whole lot, if it's just pumping the brakes and it can, if it, if these guys isolate and they keep it relatively limited, maybe they can come back and get right back into most of that six week preseason without a big problem. But any further delays and you start talking about impacting the season. And I think we're probably going to find out pretty soon that the season's not going to start September 5th anyway, that there's not going to be a pre there's not going to be a non-conference at least within the big 10. And you're going to be looking at a season that doesn't start till later in September anyway, which is going to give more time for these teams to figure some of this stuff out and either make a decision that 
that's untenable to go forward or really lock these guys down if, if they're if that's something they're even inclined to do and 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 sequester them or whatever and 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 get everybody healthy enough to have a football season yeah and what was gene smith said it himself they'd have a better idea by mid-july well it's almost mid-july and it doesn't seem like anybody has any idea yet and i think i think you're right i think we're almost past the point of those first two weeks of college football even being possible at this point because we are at the mid-july point and we are literally four four days away from you know when they start these mandatory workouts and i'm pretty sure other programs around the country are within those two week periods of when they were going to start theirs as well and as ohio state's handled as well but that, that doesn't mean other teams in the big 10 have handled it as well as ohio state has and gene smith i think actually said early july yeah and i think we've officially passed <laughs> yeah. what i would call early <laughs> july i think we're into mid-july so um or we will be by the time a lot of you guys hear this podcast. So um, there was some reporting today that came out, a guy that um, I know, Tom Deanhart, or you, a lot of you probably know him because he used to do uh, Big Ten Network analyst stuff, and he works for – he covers Purdue for goldenblack.com now. He had talked to a Power 5 head coach who said that it's looking likely that the Big Ten is going to pursue a 10-game conference-only schedule, which would mean Ohio State and everybody else adding one more – crossover game from the other division to their schedule. Um, we've mentioned that before on the podcast and, and what that could mean. And I think it's an interesting concept who they could get and how it changes their schedule. And it adds a little bit of intrigue, but um, those sorts of things are still, you know, and, and there's supposed to be a big meeting this week, maybe as early as tomorrow that some of this stuff will progress through the athletic directors talk, I think on a daily basis every morning. So th this, these, these conversations are, are constantly ongoing among big 10 officials we may know relatively soon what they hope the schedule is. We already know what they hope the schedule is. They hope there's a 12 game schedule. They, they mm -hmm. haven't changed anything about that. The schedule's already set. So now it's just a matter of whatever they decide, they could come out tomorrow and say, it's going to be a 10 game conference only schedule. And they could say, Ohio state's going to play Wisconsin or Minnesota or Northwestern or Purdue is that other game. And we could know that it could be set in stone and it still doesn't really get us any closer to having the season because that's what's still the most up in the air. Like how, manageable is this situation as far as getting players back on a field as far as really getting players back into a full practice I mean that's all that's the other thing that I think is that gives you some pessimism if that we're poor more pessimism is warranted right now because you couldn't even get through the isolated voluntary workout stage and into a more active workout with direct contact before you started having a spike that shut things down but again Ohio State isn't the first program this has happened to and it sounds like it's not as widespread as it has been in some other programs, but certainly enough that they were concerned to, enough to shut things down. Yeah, but to your point, the problem isn't, you know, well, this is a problem right now, but what happens if they do start up the mandatory workouts and then within a week and a half of being in them, you have to shut down again and then restart that whole process all over again. That's where the, the issue really starts to raise, raise itself. If, you know, we do get to the point where you are basically allowed to have contact and then, Within two weeks of having contact, there's another outbreak. And those of you who responded to our market down Monday a couple weeks ago about how many games Ohio State's going to play this year, this is a point that many of you brought up, that stops and starts are going to be a thing. Um, that, you know, those of you who said that there might be eight or nine games brought up that point. Those of you who said there was going to be one or two games brought up that point. It was just a matter of whether you thought the stop, that there would be a start after the stop. That it, Some of you thought there were going to be stops 
and that that would just be the season that they would try to play things would fall apart and we'd be done. Um, I don't want to get too far down that road. I want to touch on the, the, what we know today, what Ohio state has come out and said today. Um, the other part of it really hasn't changed because of what we heard today. All we know today is that there's a pause in the voluntary workouts. Like I said before, OSU spokesman told me that they had a date in mind. I think Bucknotes even reported when they originally were one of the ones breaking or out in front of this story. Um, they mentioned the date that was maybe just a week out and they would try to resume again. Um, this person didn't give me that indication, but just that, that for now it's open. And I think that's the most prudent way to do it. And I think in a lot of these things, um, a lot of these cases, you know, we, and sometimes on, a, for, on behalf of our own nosy selves, but sometimes on behalf of those of you who are listening that are asking us these questions and, and want to know answers, you know, we're trying to dig for, for, uh, exactitudes and specificity and the teams can't always give that to us and sometimes even if they wanted to um, but I think a lot of times they're not doing it because it's not that's not the most prudent way to handle this we do still have some time as much as it's getting I sound like I'm contradicting myself but as much as it is getting urgent there is it's still prudent I think to wait as long as possible before making some decisions that can't be walked back once you start canceling games once you start um you know, canceling trips. Um, and especially once you start talking about not having a season at all there, those are irreparable decisions. So, and, and even, even pushing it into the spring because of the ramifications of what that's going to mean for certain players careers, that's an, a thing you can't take back. So um, I, I think they're handling this the right way from what I'm seeing from the outside. We're trying to learn more uh, when we do learn more, Follow us, uh, get the text, 614-350-3315. That's the first place we're going to report things. And also, obviously, follow us at cleveland.com. Follow us on Twitter at our various sites. Um, we'll keep telling you everything we know. But for, for now, that is what we know for the night. So uh, we're going to take a little break, and I'm going to come back and talk to Emily Giambavo from the Washington Post about the Maryland Terrapins. We are joined today on Buckeye Talk by Emily Giambavo. She covers Maryland sports for the Washington Post. Emily, you're located in, I think, a really interesting part of the country when it comes to the, the COVID-19 discussion, because that's obviously one of the big things right now in, in college football is whether or not we're even going to have a season. So you've got a Washington, D.C. perspective, but you told me you're already you're also spending some time in South Carolina this summer, where you are right now. Um, and I think that brings kind of a different perspective. So I guess just how are you seeing the local momentum towards having a college football season, whether that's the local Washington, D.C. momentum or the local South Carolina momentum? Yeah, I think it's been really interesting because in the early months up in D.C., you saw everyone just taking this really, really seriously um, and working on a national newspaper. You, you just are following this so closely and, and under, understanding why it's so bad. Um, and then I came down to South Carolina where I'm from and where my parents still live for a couple of weeks in May. And I remember just like walking around the grocery stores, I was like panicking. Cause I was like, why aren't these people, why don't they care? Like, why don't they seem to know that there's a pandemic? Um, and I went back to DC for a few months and it, and it got a lot better up there. I think we're in a pretty good spot in Maryland and DC wise. And now I'm back in South Carolina for 
three weeks. And South Carolina is now one of those states you see on the list of places that are handling it the worst. And it has rapid increases. Um, and then you hear about Clemson, where I'm just on the road from, from Clemson right now. And, and you just see it in the community. You're starting to hear it from like friends of friends are testing positive and siblings of friends are testing positive. And it just feels like it's so prevalent. And that's what we're seeing in college football. You know, how can you expect a community to be spreading this disease so fast and it not to come into college football? So I think it's up to the uncertainty, especially down here in the South, maybe more so than in the Big Ten. And you, you referenced the, the positive test that, that Clemson had, but Maryland, from what I read, they te- said, at least what they released, that they tested 105 athletes with zero positives. So it seems like that's part of the discussion too. It's like there, there's probably a correlation between how the testing is going locally and how the testing will go with the athletes locally somewhat. Right, because I think – you know, the most important thing we keep hearing is that you can't put college athletes in a bubble. Like they're going to be <clears throat> on their campuses and their cities. So, so I think it makes sense that it's, that it's going to correlate. Um, and it really does feel like a lot of big 10 schools, you know, I haven't, I, I don't have a list of all the numbers, but the States and the schools seem to be doing okay. And who knows, um, you know, if decisions will really be made differently from conference to conference, but but I think, especially compared to maybe the SEC, um, ACC, I think the Big Ten might be in a, one of the better places in the country. Right. Well, let's talk football. Assuming there is going to be a season in 2020, it'll be Mike Loxley's second season as Maryland's head coach. Um, you know, one of the things I think that's stuck out with him early on is the, the recruiting success. I think he's, he seems like things have, have ticked up a little bit for Maryland there. They're becoming a little bit more – if not nationally relevant from a recruiting standpoint yet, then at least kind of, you know, establishing a, a foothold within, you know, their immediate Big Ten footprint and, and working off of that. They were 31st in the uh, na- nationally in the 24-7 composite for last year, and they're 17th right now. Um, we're, how is he doing this? It seems like it's kind of an inside-out philosophy, you know, getting those top talents at DMV area guys to stay home before you start branching out beyond that. Yeah, I think it's definitely starting in the D.C. Baltimore area, which really is one of the best places for for high school football in the country. And then you think about what Power 5 schools are around the DMV, and, and there aren't that many. You know, like Virginia, Virginia Virginia Tech are pretty far away. Penn State is a solid four hours away. So, like, you know, Maryland should be able to keep a lot of those great players. And I think that's what Larksley's starting with. And Honestly, like, that's why they hired him at Maryland. You know, I don't think you're ever going to have a successful Maryland team if you're not able to recruit well locally. So it, it's honestly impressed me because I, I've always been in the camp of, like, to some degree, no matter how good of a recruiter you are, you have to win games before you can get kids to come to your school. Um, Maryland won three games last year, only one win in the Big Ten, and yet they, they have this really great recruiting class and lots and lots of Maryland players. So – I think they're on the right track there. It's, it's just a matter of like how much that can do, especially in the Big Ten East. And, and it's going to take a few years before we even start to see, you know, the reward of recruiting this great 2021 recruiting class. And then also you got to think like, will they all stick around if Maryland goes three and nine mm-hmm. again this year? Um, so I still think I still think Maryland needs to show some considerable progress on the field with the players they have if they want to keep recruiting um, well. One of the things that fans follow in terms of recruiting is 
okay, the overall ranking is one thing, but are you landing those five-star guys? And it's, it's such a rarity, even at Maryland and, and other schools in the Big Ten sometimes when they get up into the, the 20s or 30s, those national rankings, it's, it's more a cluster of getting those four and threes. But Maryland got one last year with Rakeem Jarrett. Just what did it mean to get him to, I guess, stay home and sort of be maybe, a, I guess, a foundational piece here going forward? Yeah, I think I think that was a bigger signing than even just like who he is as a receiver, right? Like I think he's he's going to be a great player for Maryland, probably even this year. But more than that, it kind of signaled and, and Laxley said it this way on signing day, it signaled that like, hey, I'm this great player who, you know, wants to have an NFL future, wants to do big things in college, and he decided that Maryland was a school where he could do that. So it's just like almost changing the philosophy of how maybe other five-star local kids might might see Maryland. And I think that's going to have an even bigger impact, especially if he comes to Maryland and, you know, has a great freshman year, plays right away. And again, like the team shows some improvement. I think, I think that could be, you know, a huge, huge step that we look back in a few years and maybe wonder how much, how much that changed things for Loxley. I mean, what do you know about him as a player and what he's going to bring to this mix? Because I know in receiver seems to be a strength overall for this team in 2020. Yeah, I, I really don't know a ton about him as a player just because we, we haven't watched them at all. Right. I, I never went to a high school game of his, um, right. but, but he's, he's really good. And, and the receiver group is great. Like, I think if you had to look at this team and, and pick a group that's kind of far and away the best te- uh, best position group, and, and now the question is just, like, who's going to be throwing the balls to him um, because, because that's always a question at Maryland. So, so I think he'll play right away. I, I wonder if he'll be a starter. I kind of, when I was just, like, penciling things out, like, I think he could be, um, especially by the end of the year into the season. Um, but, but I think he'll be like an immediate impact type player. So as long as they have like a, a competent quarterback, which I think they might, um, then I think he'll have, have a big impact. Put a pin in that. Cause we're definitely going to come back to 2020 quarterbacks later on in this conversation. I wanted to ask one more recruiting thing. And it also has to do with quarterback because as much as we're talking about them trying to lock down the DMV, uh, they had a guy get out. Earlier this week when Caleb Williams commits to Oklahoma, a guy who'd been at, at Gonzaga Prep there in D.C. And to me, though, I, I, I don't look at it. I think I'm probably more like you. I don't necessarily look at recruiting the way fans do. To me, if you're at Maryland and you're going three and nine and you're a finalist for the number one quarterback in the country, I know he's in your backyard and you want to try to keep those guys home. That still seemed that whole episode could still be sort of a, a positive bridge to something in the future for Maryland. But uh, maybe you wouldn't see it that way just because in, in some ways you've, you've, if you've got that guy in your backyard and you're a finalist, that's maybe your only chance to actually jump up and beat Ohio State and Penn State is when you actually finally land those guys and can build something around them. Right. I actually do kind of like that line of thinking, the whole, the whole concept that Maryland was in the same sentence as Oklahoma and LSU. Like, I think we'd be wrong if we said that like, that doesn't matter. Like, I think Maryland should see that as a positive step that, that a player of that caliber even like had him, had them listed um, in, in his final three. I think it was pretty obvious all along, especially with them bringing in Talia Takavaloa. Um, it seemed like they, they probably knew. And, and as a elite quarterback, I, I really can't imagine you turning down Oklahoma just seems like the place to be right now if you're a quarterback. So, so I think it all made sense. But again, like the fact that he did consider Maryland um, does seem like a positive step. If, if he had somehow committed, it, it would have been like 
the biggest recruiting win of Loxley's life. Um, probably could have been one of those like program changing type wins, but I doubt Maryland fans want to even think about that. Um, but, but again, like good steps all, all around in, in recruiting, especially coming into such a bad situation where a player died and there were serious, serious culture issues. I, I'm really impressed by just how quickly recruiting has turned around. I thought it would take maybe a year or so just to try to establish like a new way of thinking and new culture with, with convincing players and parents that, that they should send their kid to Maryland. That's actually a really good point. It's that it wasn't that long ago when things were really a mess at Maryland. Have have things started to stabilize, even if you're not seeing wins and they're not competing to even break up into the really the middle of the Big Ten quite yet. Have things at least is there sort of a sense of normalcy where some of that negativity has been pushed back and and now things are more just about football, or are you still seeing some residuals of the mess that was there. Yeah, I think I think Loxley pretty much handled it as perfectly as he could have. Um, and I think that played into the fact that they chose him to be the guy to come in after this because he's from the area. Players love him. All of his former players really um, like him and, and high schoolers love him. Um, so I think when choosing a head coach, the number one criteria needed to be like, who is someone that the community, the fan base, the players can trust. And, and I think Loxley is a really, really good fit for that. And, and I think, you know, they didn't keep any assistance on from the last staff. So it did kind of feel like a, you know, just complete changing of the guard with, with the staff. And I think no matter what type of organization you're at, like that, that helps when there has been a serious issue so it does feel like we're finally to the point where it's like, you know, you can just think about football. And, and it's hard because, like, there are a lot of players still on the team who were friends with Jordan McNair. So it's like this is really never going away and will always be part of the program. And it, and it should be. And it should kind of guide the way they handle player safety and, and things like that. Um, but, but I do think Loxley's done a good job of, of, like, addressing it. And Loxley's really leaned into he knows the family well, um, the McNair family, and knew them before he, you know, got to Maryland from recruiting and um, from other things. And, and I think he hasn't tried to like make it part of the past. He's very much addressing the fact that Jordan McNair is still, you know, a piece of, of this program and how the, how they need to do things. So looking back at last season, a great start. I mean, I think I was one of the top 25 voters who got duped in and gave them a, a, a low top 25 vote. I have to go back and look, but I think that's correct. Two and O start They're They're crushing people. And then, one win the rest of the way, and it just all fell apart. When you look back on that now, do you have a, a new, any, any different perspective on what was happening? Because sometimes when, when it's in the moment, you know, week to week, um, it, it, I, I have a different perspective. Sometimes I look back on it a year later as to what was actually going on there. I mean, did you, did you think something was building there, or did it seem like it was a little bit of smoke and mirrors and what happened was a little bit inevitable? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I know preseason, you know, everyone, I, I'm, as you know, like as a beat writer, everyone's always like, how many, how many wins are they going to get? Um, and I was very much in the, the four wins camp, you know, and, and I think a lot of people on the beat were a little critical or at least uh, far more optimistic than I was. I think a lot of people around the program thought maybe they'd get to six because they did have talent. Like, like Maryland always has like talent here and there. It's not super well-rounded as you would see at, you know, the big time programs. Um, but, 
but I just, I just didn't feel like it was going to happen that year. And then after that Syracuse game, I started to like, feel like, man, maybe I was just wrong. You know, like I, I really started to walk it back a little bit. Um, and then I think part of it was just, we didn't know how bad Syracuse was either because Syracuse was ranked at the time too. So it wasn't that people were just wrong about Maryland. They were wrong about Syracuse. So it all kind of was a perfect storm with convincing Maryland fans that, you know, maybe there was something. Um, but I think if you, you know, if you think of preseason expectations compared to where they landed, maybe underachieved a little bit, but for a first year head coach, entirely new staff, new systems, you know, roster, not a great offensive line, not a great defensive line, new quarterback, quarterback that maybe underachieved a bit. Um, I think three wins probably made sense, especially in the division that they're in. So Maryland was pretty young last season, especially on defense. And I think we saw that on the field. So I, I think based on that, people probably expected, well, they'll, they'll be better going into this year, but then they've also had a lot of defections and it seems like that side of the ball was hit especially hard. How, how much are those departures going to hurt what they can do in 2020? And is it starting to seem like they're going to have to even maybe take another step back or still be down at that, that, that three-win kind of area before they could potentially step forward and start building something? Yeah, I think um, – I'm not that concerned about the, the transfers. I think there were maybe – there were more than 12. I think it was maybe like 14, 15 was the final number. Um, but none of them were really like – um, you know, people who were going to make a big impact. It, I, it seemed kind of like that natural new staff kind of um, just making it become their roster type deal. So, so that wasn't that concerning. I do think the like two of their best players were Anthony McFarland Jr. And, and Javon Leak, uh, both running backs. So I think that's a concern. Um, I don't know if it'll necessarily be like a step back. I think it's hard to step back from three wins, but I, I wouldn't be surprised or I certainly wouldn't be surprised if they're not bowl eligible again. Um, but maybe they surprise a little bit if because of the receivers we talked about. And then if, if uh, quarterback Talia Tagovailoa is eligible and, and good, um, who knows, but, but I think maybe that could help them get over the hump and, and or whatever we want to call the hump, maybe up to five wins, maybe sneak into six wins um, if they really play well this year. But, but the defense is still maybe a little more experienced, but still, I mean, still like defensive line was, was pretty experienced last year. And now they're having to replace a couple starters and um, they're just some concerning spots all over. So you mentioned quarterback a few times. Um, Talia Tagovailoa transferring in. They're still waiting to find out, right, if he's going to be eligible. Um, they have another transfer, Josh Jackson, who transferred in last year from Virginia Tech. He would be eligible beginning this season. So I guess that's kind of – it seems like they're in a position where the, the, the ultimate fortunes of this team could, could swing pretty wildly depending on who gets that job or who, who's eligible, who's healthy, and who's going to run away with that. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, <clears throat> that's kind of how it is for a lot of teams, it seems like. But, you know, Maryland, even more so, they just haven't had a stable quarterback situation in so, so long. Um, there have just been so many injuries. But now the, the three guys, the three scholarship quarterbacks are all people Loxley recruited. So you, you like to think or hope that, okay, this means that they're coming into his system. They can do what he's asking them to do. Um, but – I, you have three that could all, could all realistically start next year, I think. Um, Josh Jackson started last year, was, you know, underachieved a little bit, was great in those first two games. His drop-off really 
correlated with the team as a whole. Um, he played really well against some of those lesser opponents and then just couldn't do much and, and had a minor injury during the season. And then Lance Lejean doesn't get talked about a lot. He, he was a freshman last year that Loxley recruited and he played in three games to preserve the red shirt. And, and I, I like him. I think he's really good. Could be a starter down the road. Um, and then obviously Talia. And I think if I'd put money on it, like I'd say he'd be the guy if, if he can be eligible and we still don't, we still don't know that yet, but I think we've all seen um, that quarterbacks, you know, it's not, not always the hardest process to, to get a waiver to play um, across in, in every spot in football. So I think if he's eligible, I'd probably give him the upper hand just because, you know, Loxley brought him in for a reason and I would go with that. But again, like wouldn't be surprised if any of the three started, which I think right there is, is the biggest problem. Yeah. I mean, obviously Ohio state saw what can happen when a guy transfers in and, and when they were able to get Justin Fields at immediate eligibility and it, that, that was what led to everything that happened last season for them, you know, getting back to the playoffs and everything. What exactly are they basing the, the Tagovailoa case on? Do you have any idea like what it, what, what his hardship case is? Cause I don't know that it really matters. Actually. I think, I think you sort of apply for a hardship and more often than not, you get it. It seems these days. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, kind of the deal everywhere. Um, he played five games at Alabama, which is really kind of, you know, you feel bad for him to be in the situation in the first place, given that, you know, if he had it played in garbage time in one of those games, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even be a question. Um, I, I don't know what they're basing it on, but I know there was like some optimism early on, but, but then it's July and they still haven't heard. So, so I think there's some, there's some questions now maybe. Um, but I do think, you know, with the coronavirus, I know that's been kind of a conversation around college sports is that, you know, maybe that ups the, the, you know, frequency that the players are giving waivers. And, and, you know, we could talk about this all day, but I think, you know, you should either give them to everyone or nobody. Um, it's, it's such a weird situation, but, but I do think if he, if he can play, um, he'll have a, a really good chance of getting the job. Well, and especially right now, we're in this purgatory between when they are going to just open it up for everybody, which seems inevitable. I mean, that's already kind of on the books. And then now giving kind of some lip service or whatever to the old rules and the old um, strictures of, of whether guys can move or not. This seems like just a, an odd time for, for a lot of programs because I don't know that there's a good sense of exactly how the NCAA is approaching some of this. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, that's kind of how we've seen this play out the last couple of years. And I know Maryland had a, a couple of waiver situations last year and they were all approved. Um, so, so I think, you know, they know how to do it. And I, I, I'd expect the same thing, but again, like feels like maybe we should be getting an answer soon. And if it haven't heard anything in a few weeks, then maybe I'd be a little more concerned. It looks like one of the ways that Ohio State and Maryland have some similarities this year is uh, linebacker might be a strength of this defense. Um, I guess just maybe kind of take us through the defense and and um, what Maryland's going to put on the field because that's obviously going to be a challenge, I think, for a lot of teams in the East to to go up against a team that has Justin Fields and this receiving core and this offensive line and, and try to slow them down. Yeah, I think – when, when I start looking at the defense position by position, I can almost like talk myself into it. Like when I think of it as a whole, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, I don't know how great they'll be, but like you said, the linebackers will be good. They have Shaq Smith, who was a transfer from Clemson, Iende Ely, who played really well as a young guy, uh, played well last year. And then Chance Campbell, also a young guy, played well last year. 
Um, and then they have an outside linebacker who was injured and didn't play at all last year. So, so kind of like a bunch of guys coming back who, who were all part of the system last year. They have a freshman coming in um, who's a linebacker who could be one of those freshmen who plays immediately um, or should play immediately, could maybe start immediately. And then, and then when you look at the secondary, Nick Cross really developed a lot last year. He was one of the big local um, high-profile recruits for Loxley, Loxley and, and he developed a lot as the year went, but he was still a freshman. So I think when anytime you have a guy coming back as a sophomore um, and then some other sophomores who will be playing in the secondary. So I think, I think both of those positions should be better than last year. And then the defensive line would be my concern, um, which, again, like offensive line, defensive line are kind of these – like. Always, always the concerns at a school like Maryland, and, and that can really change a game. So, so I think that's where where you'd worry the most. Um, but we did we talked about all this turnover and kind of having a, a number of JUCO guys, freshmen who hope to contribute, transfers, whether it's at the quarterback position or defense or wherever it may be. And then you think about not having a spring and not having, you know, they haven't started fall camp yet. And I think. Maryland could be at a disadvantage because of that, as opposed to a team that's maybe returning a quarterback or returning a surefire starting quarterback and, and, and stuff like that. So, so if they had gone a whole spring, I'd probably feel a little better about the defense and just in general. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of see how, how they all are when they finally get on the field together on, in a month. Did Maryland get any official spring practices? No, they, they hadn't started. Um, okay. I think they were supposed to start like a week later. Yeah. Ohio State had three and then had spring break and then spring break is still, I guess, kind of going on for them. And then um, and there were a couple of Big Ten teams that had eight, I guess. But but, but most uh, I think the majority of Big Ten teams had had zero. Um, do you, is there any specific area where you feel like that could have the biggest impact that they just weren't able to any particular position that they weren't able to develop more this spring? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious one is quarterbacks. Um, and just when you think about it you're still in year two of a coach um, and just developing systems. And, and this was supposed to be, uh, I, I went to school at Georgia and covered Kirby Smart's first couple of years. And it's like, you always heard so much about that year one to year two jump. And I do think that's a real thing in, in college football. Ryan Day kind of bucked to that trend and just did it all in year one. But, um, but I think that's a real thing for, for players and for coaches. And, and they kind of get their guys in there the first year. They recruit the guys they want. And then year two is when you can really have a whole spring to, to teach them the systems and then hopefully see the product of that in the fall. And we just didn't get that this year. And I'm curious how it will affect uh, teams across the country. I guess it, we're only, like I said, going into the second season. But just what are your impressions of, of Loxley so far and – the foundation he's laying here and, and I get, you know, the kind of the identity, I guess he's trying to give the program. Cause I think that anytime you're coming in, especially under the circumstances he's coming in, that seems pretty important to me that you have to kind of come in and decide what you're going to be really good at and, and build from there. And you see some signs of that happening. Yeah. I think that's one of the most fascinating things because he's kind of, he totally leans into the local angle, which we've talked about. And I think is kind of critically important for, for a Maryland team. And he's, he grew up in DC and just loves DC and, and still has a lot of ties to the area. So I think he in many ways leans into like, I know in his recruiting, he really pitches the whole, like we're right between DC and Baltimore, like 
look at all the opportunities you'll have. Like that's a big part of his pitch to players and, and the way he sells his program. So you have that side and then you have the side that's like trying to be like Alabama. Like I, I know when he got here, you're always asking the questions of like, what's your system? What's your system going to be? And for offense, he was like, we're going to run the system we ran at Alabama. And, and, and like, he was pretty steadfast in, in that and describing it that way. Some of the other smaller things like media access and, and, and little things have also been replicated in the Saban model. So it's almost, fa- mm-hmm. it's fascinating. You kind of have these, like this local guy from the area coming in to lead the team. Who's also trying to make it a bit like Alabama uh, without the same caliber of players. So, so you kind of have both those things working into the identity, I'd say. By media access, you mean no media access. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just like the classic things of like no freshmen, no assistants. Right. Um, yeah. So, and it's funny cause I, like I just said, I covered Georgia with a saving assistant and Kirby smart. So I was very, very accustomed to that. But then again, Maryland's only winning three games a year. So not quite, right. not quite there yet. Right. Um, there aren't a lot of black head coaches, um, you know, especially in FBS, especially at the power five level. And this is obviously uh, here in just the last couple months race and how it relates and, and how college football and, and all college athletes, I guess, are using this moment to sort of speak out and, and, and have more of a voice. I'm just curious how you see Loxley being able to maybe, I, I, I hate to say, not, not use it to his advantage, but like, do you feel like that can be something that um, has an impact here that, that, that players may be looking for someone like him as they make this decision going forward in the next few years about where they want to attend college? Yeah, I, I think for sure, and, and rightfully so. I mean, I think players or high schoolers now are more aware than ever to to maybe think harder about where they're going, the coaches they're playing for. You see what's happening at Iowa and, and at other schools with players finally feeling empowered to like speak up about problems in their own program. And so I think in the recruiting process, there will be a bigger emphasis on like, how am I going to be treated? And especially when it comes to you know, injustices or or racism in the program, having a black head coach for, especially for a black player is going to give them comfort um, in knowing that they have someone who understands what it, what it means to be black in America. And Loxley was a college football player. He grew up in DC. So, so I think he, he relates in a lot of ways. Um, And I was, I was just talking to I did a story and I talked to the dad of a, a class of 21 receiver and and I we were talking about it and the receivers coach is black the offensive coordinator is black Loxley's black the AD is black the president is black and even the big 10 commissioner so and we were just talking about that and he was like that means everything to me as a parent so so I think like it's it's obvious that for parents who need to feel like they can trust the coach to really have their their kids best interests at heart um I think I think it does matter and I think Loxley gets it and he's kind of you know he's willing to to kind of show that he'll he'll be there for the players and and relate to them and understands the the issues they might be going through so Ohio State is supposed to play at Maryland on November 14th as we sit here on July 8th how likely is it do you think I mean should should Ohio State fans be thinking about finding tickets and hotel rooms or are you skeptical we're going to have football fans at games this year or at least Again, that can, and that's going to maybe vary by by location and by team too. Yeah, I've 
I feel like this has been like a roller coaster for me personally, um, because when this all happened, I, I was like, there's no way. Like, I was so pessimistic just because it's like, I, I understand exponential growth. And I was looking at the graphs and I was looking at everything. And I was like, this is not good. And I think I panicked pretty early just about what this meant for our country and, and even the college football season. And then, so I, I was really pessimistic. And then when they came out with the announcement that was going to, that they decided to let players back at the beginning of June, I really started, everything shifted for me. I was like, okay, you know what? I think we're going to do this. Like maybe, maybe fans aren't going to be there, but you know, I was wrong. I think, I think it might be okay. And then within like a matter of weeks, we start getting all these positive tests. The country as a whole starts, you know, spiking in, in all of these places. And it, it kind of just, it flipped the other way again. So I think I'm like, I'm not optimistic, but I haven't like counted it out either. I think it seems likely that we'll have adjustments to the season, whether that's with the scheduling, the timing, um, or a delay, and then particularly with fans. So, so with your question being like, should fans be booking tickets? Like, I think that makes it a lot easier to say, like, maybe you should hang tight on that. Um, because I think we'll be very lucky just to be able to, you know, watch football this fall. Um, and, and I'm not quite sure how many fans will, will be able to be there if, if it does happen. And I don't know if media are going to be making those trips or what, um, what, number they'll allow us to be in the stadium for for any given game so i don't know if we'll get to see you this fall but uh thank you for joining us emily jimbabo from the washington post really appreciate your time and um enjoy your time in south carolina and uh hopefully we, we do get to uh, hang out again once the season starts thanks for having me our thanks to emily jimbabo from the washington post for coming on talk about maryland That'll do it for this episode of Buckeye Talk. Come back tomorrow. We're going to have another position preview for you, continuing our other series that we've been cranking out here in the last few weeks. And also for our tech subscribers, 614-350-3315. Sometime Thursday after, hopefully you've already heard this, you'll be getting your Mark It Down Monday question because we're recording that on Friday. Doug back in the mix, marking it down for Monday. And, um, we're going to be getting close to the season. Those are going to start getting a little bit more specific, a little bit, um, a little bit more big picture in terms of some things we're going to see, not just for Ohio state again, hopefully if the season unfolds as, as expected, um, both for Ohio state and then just also nationally, some things we expect to see in college football this season, not going to start that quite yet. We're still going to be a little bit more specific on the Buckeyes going into Monday, but as we, progress here in the next few weeks it's going to start to ramp up towards hopefully the start of the season uh that's the plan anyway we'll see how COVID-19 decides to interrupt that again as it as it seems to do every few days uh as as a calendar unfolds but thanks again for joining us and that was Buckeye Talk <laughs>